Well, do you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter number two? This is going to be our text and we will read it in just a few minutes. Before we read the text, though, let me affirm what all of you already know. And that is, of course, that our world is sick. And I don't mean to say that it's a sick world out there. What I mean to affirm is that our world really is sick. The cases of coronavirus that have been confirmed worldwide now have exceeded 3 million people around the globe. And here in the United States, uh, a third of those exist. Nearly a million cases of COVID-19 have been confirmed in America. uh, uh, 200,000 of those uh, who have died across the world uh, have died here in America to the tune of 50,000. About half of those have died in New York. And if the death toll itself is not enough to convince us that the world is sick, all you need to do is to go to the grocery store or to one of the big box stores that remains open and walk the aisles and see the social distancing and the masks covering people's faces. Something that we used to only see in China and now it's all around the world and uh, even here in our neighborhood. Surely the world is sick. And of course, when we think about the world being sick, we also have to acknowledge that the economy is ill as well. Uh, The uh, global economic cost of this coronavirus uh, pandemic can only be measured in terms of multiple trillions of dollars of lost wealth around the world. Um, In fact, here in America, Fortune magazine now is estimating that the true unemployment number in the United States has exceeded 20%. Think about that, 20% unemployment when only six, seven weeks ago that number was 3%. 26 million Americans have filed for unemployment in the last 40 days. Some of us among them. The fact of the matter is the economy has been shuttered. It has been closed. Entire industries here in America are no longer operating. Things like airlines and hotels virtually shut down. Much of retail virtually shut down. Our schools have been closed. In North Carolina, as well as in many states, they will not reopen this year. The world is sick. And the economy is sick as well. And the longer that this sickness continues, the culture is becoming sick and divided at the same time. The populace, the people, the tension is rising. We're seeing this all over the news where we're discovering that that the, the, the nation is becoming divided. Half of the nation, parts of the nation placing blame and fault finding, other parts trying to problem solve. Reopen rallies are erupting all over the nation where people are demanding of their local and state governments that the economy must be reopened. Some of them who are saying that the cure cannot be worse than the disease. While others are saying that there's no economic cost that is too great as long as we're saving lives. The the culture is becoming sick as well. So the the world is sick, 
the nation is sick, the economy is ill, the culture is sick, and with all of this sickness happening all around us, this is no time for the church to be sick as well. The world cannot handle a sick church in these days. Leonard Ravenhill was um, a 20th century British revivalist and evangelist. Um, Ravenhill died, I think, in the late 90s, mid-90s maybe. Uh, But he was a voice in the 20th century for revival around the world and particularly here in America. Uh, In 1989 which was the year in which I came to serve here at Brookstone, I read uh, his book. He was a prolific author. I read his book, Why Revival Tarries. And that book changed my life and changed my ministry. Ravenhill was a Wesleyan by denomination, but uh, his roots were deep in Pentecostalism, and he was a fiery preacher. And Ravenhill once famously declared, there is no greater tragedy than a sick church in a dying world. Let me say that again. There is no greater tragedy than a sick church in a dying world. There's been a lot of talk lately about the need for therapeutics Uh, during the COVID-19 crisis. We need therapies. We need medicines. We need treatments that can help those who are infected uh, with COVID-19. Ultimately, uh, we need a vaccine, and uh, we hope that that will eradicate this virus altogether. But when we're sick, be it with COVID-19 or any other sickness, what we need is a prescription, When we're sick, we need a prescription that will give us the medication that will make us well. And today, I want to talk to you about God's prescription for his church. God's prescription for his church. Now, I don't often give a title to sermons that I deliver. I almost never do that. Well, maybe that's not completely true. I'm almost always teaching through a book of the Bible or on some topic. And so uh, my sermons are typically thrillingly titled uh, week one, (laughs) week two, week three. So I I don't typically give a title to a message, but today I'm going to. And I want you to write this down somewhere. Today I want to talk to you about the prescription of Pentecost. The prescription of Pentecost. And in fact, I I want today to serve as an introduction to our next teaching series, which I'm going to launch into next Sunday morning. We're calling it Life in the Spirit. And over these weeks, we are going to be thinking about the five ways in which the Holy Spirit renews and refreshes our lives. Life in the Spirit. Now, before we get into today's text, let me just remind you that over the last few weeks, we have been considering the passion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, as most of you know. So three weeks ago, we talked about his crucifixion and his burial. Two weekends ago, on Easter Sunday, we celebrated the message of the angel. He is not here, he is risen, as we thought about the resurrection of Jesus. 
Last Sunday, we talked about that often ignored um, uh, element of Christ's passion, which was his ascension. We dealt with the fact that Christ ascended to the right hand of God. And last Sunday, we noted several significant aspects of the fact that Jesus ascended to the right hand of of God. We talked about the fact that he ascended and was enthroned in heaven in order to receive the kingdom that he had been promised as the Messiah to receive the kingdom that will ultimately uh, last uh, on throughout all eternity. He was receiving the kingdom. Secondly, we talked about the fact that he was enthroned in heaven that he might make intercession for the believers. We talked about how that he was enthroned in heaven preparing to return as our uh, coming king. And most notably last week, we began this discussion of the fact that the ascension made possible the arrival of the Holy Spirit. The ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God made possible the descending or the arrival of the Holy Spirit here on the earth. Here was the principle. When Christ is exalted, the Spirit comes down. When Christ goes up, the Spirit moves among us. His ascension made possible the arrival of the Holy Spirit. In fact, let me remind you from Acts chapter number 1. Look at verse number 4, verses 4 and 5 where you'll remember we read these verses last week. Jesus said this, Acts chapter 1 verse 4, being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. But Jesus said, wait. Now, if you're a note taker, I want you to take your pen. And in verse number 4, I want you to circle the word wait. He said, wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. Skip down to verse number 8, Acts 1 and verse 8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said to them, the Holy Spirit is coming. My ascension is making way for the descending, the arrival of, of the Holy Spirit to inhabit his church. And so following his command in verse number four, they waited. Now, by the way, have you ever thought about this? Where did the disciples wait in Jerusalem? During those days between the Ascension and Pentecost, where did they wait? Uh, We typically think that they waited in the upper room. That's sort of what tradition teaches us. It, It presents this picture that during their days of waiting for the Holy Spirit, that they were huddled in a secret or a private room that they were cloistered or somehow they went underground and were hiding away during those days of waiting. But in fact, that's not true. In fact, look at what the Bible says in Luke chapter 24 and verse number 53. It says, and they, speaking of these disciples, and they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. They were in the temple. So I'm convinced that the events that we will read of today in Acts chapter number 2 happened 
not in a secret room somewhere on a back road on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, but rather the events that occurred in Acts chapter 2 happened in the temple of God in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah for all of the world to see. And to that point, why would a group of Jewish men and women, disciples of Jesus, but Jewish men and women, why would they be at the temple on this particular day? Why? Well, they would be there because they were celebrating the Jewish festival of Shavuot. Shavuot. By the way, do you want to learn a Hebrew word today? You want to pronounce that word? Would you say it out loud with me? It's, it's Sha, S-H-A, Sha, Vuot, Shavuot. They were celebrating the Jewish festival of Shavuot. And we're going to learn in just a moment why that is so important. All right, all of that to give you some background to our text in Acts chapter number 2. Are you there? Will you follow along as I read just four verses, beginning in verse number 1. Acts chapter 2 verse 1 says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all of the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire that sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 1, on the day of Pentecost, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost or with the Holy Spirit. Now again, if you have a pen, I want you in verse number 1 to circle or underline this time stamp, this time mark in the text on the day of Pentecost. You see that phrase? When the day of Pentecost was fully come. You know, to our Western Christian minds, to our non-Jewish minds, when we read the day of Pentecost, when it had fully come, that means almost nothing to most Christians. We view that as just another day on the calendar, like saying when April the 26th had fully arrived. That it just happened to be the day when the Spirit of God came. In fact, we tend to think that the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is in fact what gave the day of Pentecost its significance. And yet the truth is, it is the significance of the day of Pentecost which demanded that that was the very day on which the Holy Spirit would in fact come. It was the deep significance of Pentecost which caused God to wait to send the Holy Spirit on that exact day. We noted this in Acts chapter 1. I read it just a moment ago in verse number 4. I had you circle the word wait. You see it again, Acts chapter 1 verse 4? Wait, because verse 5 says you will be uh, baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days from now. 
When Jesus gathered with his disciples on the Mount of Olives just before his ascension, he said, wait here in a few days, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, why wait? Right? Do you ever ask yourself that question? Why wait? Why not just send the Holy Spirit now? Why not on the very day that Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit could come on that day? Why could they not pass in the sky as Christ is ascending, the Holy Spirit is coming? Because there was a day that would arrive in a few days, the day of Pentecost. And that was the day that God had determined that the Holy Spirit would come on the day of Pentecost. Now, by the way, I should stop and take note of this fact that God chooses days on which he will do profound things. God is not a God of random happenstance where things just happen to occur on certain days. God chooses, he predetermines days on which he will do certain things. Did you know that the birth of Jesus was predetermined? The day that Christ was born was chosen by God. Galatians 4 says that when the fullness of time was come, when just the right moment came, Christ came forth. And not only his birth but his death occurred on the day prescribed by God. Throughout Jesus' lifetime, he said, this is not my hour. It's not my day. This is not time. There were moments they tried to take him and kill him or take him and make him a king. Couldn't happen because God had a prescribed day. He was going to die on that Passover and it would not happen a day sooner. God chooses days upon which he will do things. You know, the Bible tells us that the day of Christ's return is chosen. It's predetermined. The Bible says that God knows the day. The angels don't know the day, but God knows the day. He's chosen the day. And in fact, Jesus told us in the gospel of, I'm sorry, in the book of Acts, uh, in Peter's sermon, he said that there is a day when God has determined that he will judge the world. I'm simply making the point. God chooses days. He chose the day of Christ's birth, the day of Christ's death. He's chosen the day that he will return. He's chosen the day in which he will judge the earth. And by the way, did you know that God knows the day that you will die, the day that I will die? Hebrews 9, 27 says it's appointed unto men once to die. And that word appointed means a reservation. We have a reservation with death. God chooses days on which he will do significant things. And the day of Pentecost is the day that God had chosen when he would send the Holy Spirit. Now let's talk about Pentecost for just a second. The word Pentecost means 50 or 50th. It is so called because it is the 50th day from the Passover. Passover occurs, and 50 days later exactly is the day of Pentecost. It is the day called among the Hebrews Shavuot. It is the day that they celebrate the festival of Shavuot, the 50th day from Passover. And throughout Jewish history, the rabbis have taught that it was on this day of Pentecost that God actually delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. 
Here's what the Bible teaches us in the book of Exodus. You'll remember this from Exodus chapter number 12. The Passover lamb was slaughtered in every Jewish home in the land of Egypt on Passover. The following morning, having the death angel having passed through and brought that tenth and final plague upon Egypt, the Egyptians drove the Israelites out of their land. So on Passover, the lamb, the Passover lamb was slaughtered. The next day, the Israelites left the land of Egypt. They traveled for 40 days. And after 40 days, the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai in the desert. Following their arrival at Mount Sinai, Moses then went up onto Mount Sinai to meet with God to receive the law of God. And the Jewish rabbis have taught that on the 50th day, the 50th day from Passover on Pentecost, which would correspond to Shavuot, that Moses came down from the mountain carrying the tablets of stone. 50 days after Passover, Moses came down with the law of God. And that Pentecost, that original Pentecost, was the origination point, the institution of the old covenant in the law of God. Now, you're tracking with me? You're hanging with me? God gave his law on the first Pentecost. But God also made a promise in the prophet Jeremiah. And the promise that God made was that he would one day send the Messiah who would fulfill perfectly the imperfect old covenant under the law, and that this Messiah would institute that he would bring in a new and a better covenant. Do you remember this promise in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 33? Here's what it says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Do you see, this is the promise of Pentecost. That on the original Pentecost, God gave his law written upon stone, but he promised them that another Pentecost would come when God would write his law upon their hearts. And the parallels between the first Pentecost and the Pentecost of Acts chapter 2, the parallels between the old covenant being received and the new covenant being instituted are beautiful to behold. Imagine this. On the first Passover, the Passover lamb died in Egypt. On the second Passover in the new covenant, the lamb of God, Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, was slaughtered on that Passover. Forty days after the first Passover in the Old Covenant, Moses ascended up into the mountain to meet with God. In the New Covenant, 40 days after the Passover lamb, Jesus was slaughtered, Christ ascended to heaven to be with the Father, seated upon the throne. Ten days after Moses went up into the mountain, he came down from the mountain carrying the law of God written into tablets of stone. And in the new covenant, 
10 days after Jesus ascended, 50 days after Passover, the Spirit of God came down to write the law of God, not on stone tablets, but to write the law of God in our hearts. So this Pentecost of Acts chapter number 2 was God's prescription for the cold, hard, stone-engraved religion of the old covenant where he would prescribe a new covenant which would bring the life of the Holy Spirit into the church. And Pentecost remains today as God's prescription to bring life and health and vitality to his people living in a sickly world. Now, beginning next Sunday, we're going to talk about who the Holy Spirit is exactly and how it is that the Holy Spirit works among us, how it is that he transforms us. Today, from our text in Acts chapter 2, I simply want to notice with you a couple of significant facts about the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Would you write the first one down with me? I'm back in Acts chapter number 2. And you're going to notice that the Holy Spirit, when he appeared, he arrived as wind and as fire. As wind and as fire. Here's the first aspect I want you to jot down. What we learn from this is that the Holy Spirit energizes his people. Write it down. Let's talk about it. The Holy Spirit energizes his people. While you're jotting that down, let me read to you. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 2 says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. On the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, while the disciples were in the temple celebrating Shavuot, the giving of the law, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit, suddenly they began to hear moving down the corridors and in the courtyard and throughout the area of the Temple Mount, this this wind began to blow. And it wasn't a gentle wind. The Bible says in verse number two, it sounded like a rushing, mighty wind that began to blow among them. It was the arrival of the Holy Spirit. You know, not infrequently, in fact, I would say frequently, the Bible uses wind or breath as a symbol of the active movement and the work of the Holy Spirit. And every time the Bible pictures or symbolizes the Holy Spirit as moving, the Spirit is doing a work of creation or a work of redemption or a life-giving work. The Spirit of God is moving to bring about something new, something filled with life. Now, you see this over and over in the Bible. Let me give you just a few examples. 
Uh, maybe the most obvious would be in the very beginning, the second verse of the Bible. Genesis chapter number 1 and verse 2 says that the earth was uh, without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. That there was chaos. And then it goes on to say, and the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters. And you have this sense in that word hovering that the Spirit of God is moving. It is a wind that is blowing across the void and the darkness and the chaos. And it is bringing light and creation and, and life into this chaos and this darkness and this emptiness. It is the Spirit of God moving into emptiness and bringing life and form. And then again later, in Genesis chapter number 8 and verse 1, following the flood of Noah's day, did you know that the Bible says in Genesis 8-1 that when the flood waters had stopped falling, the rains had stopped falling and the fountains of the deep were no longer gushing forth, that God sent a wind and that the wind began to move across the face of the waters and it began a work of recreating the earth and the waters uh, abated and the new earth emerged out of Noah's flood. The Spirit of God was active in the creation of the earth originally and then it was active in the recreation of the earth following the flood. In the creation of Adam, Genesis chapter 2 verse number 7. The Bible says that God formed man out of the dust of the ground, but then he breathed into his nostrils. There's that word for breath or wind. God breathed and his spirit gave life to Adam and the man became a living soul. Three beautiful examples from the creation accounts in Genesis of God's spirit moving like the wind. To bring life. And then, of course, when you move to the New Testament, who, of, uh, who among us would not remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Do you remember that story, don't you? Nicodemus comes to Jesus, says, Master, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No man can do the things that you're doing unless God is with him. And Jesus said, You must be born again. And you remember Nicodemus said, I don't know what you mean by being born again. And Jesus said, You must be born of the Spirit. And then he used wind to tell Nicodemus what the Spirit was like. He said, the Spirit is like the wind. You see the, or you, you feel the wind, you sense the wind, you know the wind is moving, but you can't see it. He said, the Spirit's the same way. The Spirit moves, he blows among us, and he gives life. We are born again when he gives us that life. Again, the Bible saying that the Spirit of God is like the wind. And I'm reminded how that Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16 that God has given us his word. How did we get the Bible? The word of God. We got it by the breath of the Holy Spirit. The wind of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word means the breath of God. The, 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 uh, the wind of God's spirit giving us this word. In fact, uh, Peter affirms that very thing when he writes that the word of God came to us as holy men of old wrote or spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Here's the point over and over again. What the Bible says is that the Holy Spirit, like the wind, 
moves among us, invisible, unseen, but obvious in his work, to create, to redeem, to recreate, to give life. It is what the Holy Spirit does. He energizes what is dead, giving it life. He energizes what is useless, making it useful. Now, when I say that the Holy Spirit energizes us, I don't mean to say that the Holy Spirit enthuses us or that he excites us. Now, he does that, but that's not the point of being energized. I mean to say that the Holy Spirit moves like the wind to make us useful. You know, you put batteries in a flashlight, the batteries don't excite the flashlight. The batteries make the flashlight worth something. They make the flashlight useful or effective. Well, it's the same way with the Holy Spirit. The point is we're empty flashlights without the power and the presence and the moving of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And this is the reason that Jesus said to his disciples there on the Mount of Olives, don't leave Jerusalem. Don't think your mission begins until you are energized by the moving of the Holy Spirit. And when the wind of the Spirit blows in in a few days on Pentecost, when the Spirit of God comes and writes his law on your heart and empowers your ministry, then, he says in Acts 1.8, in that power of the Holy Spirit, you go and you be effective in carrying the gospel around the world. Do you understand? The Holy Spirit came like the wind to make us useful for God's glory. Now, I've mentioned Genesis and John and Paul's writing and Peter's writings, how that the Spirit of God is pictured as the wind. Do you mind if I show you one more place? I'm going to turn. You can turn with me if you'd like to. It's the book of Ezekiel. Uh, some of you know where I'm going. Ezekiel 37. The Bible, maybe more dramatically than in any other place, pictures for us the effect of the moving of the Holy Spirit among his people. Can I read it to you? It's the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel 37, verse number 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he carried me out in the Spirit unto, uh, and set me down in the midst of a valley which was full of bones. And he calls me to walk around and to pass by and to see them. And behold, he walked that valley from one end to the other and all he saw were skeletons. He says there were very many bones in the open valley and they were very dry. This is the picture of useless death. An entire army of men who have died. And all that remains, the flesh is gone, the muscle is gone, the ligaments are gone. All that remains are the skeletal remains of this mighty army, and they can do nothing. And many of you know this is a picture of the, of the death and the rebirth of the nation of Israel. But for us, it's so instructive. Because God asks the question to uh, Ezekiel, can these bones live? Can I do anything with, with such emptiness? Can I revitalize such death? Can the Spirit of God take something so useless, so dead, so yesterday, and make it alive and effective for my glory? And Ezekiel says, Lord, you know, you can do anything. And he says, I want you to begin to prophesy. And Ezekiel prophesies, but listen to what verse number 9 says. Verse number 9 says, Then he said unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, or to the breath. 
Here's a way to say it. Prophesy to the Spirit. Prophesy unto the wind or to the breath. Prophesy, Son of Man, and say to the wind, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath. There's the prayer. Come, O Holy Spirit, and fill us. Come, O Holy Spirit, and work among us. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. Verse 10, so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood up upon their feet, and they became an exceedingly great army. The picture of Ezekiel 37 is that God takes a useless yesterday dead army and by his spirit he raises them up and they become effective again. I want you to listen to me. God by his spirit energizes his people. And you may think, I'm useless. I'm I'm used goods. I'm, I'm yesterday's news. God could never use me. God could never take my bones of broken circumstance, my valley of empty despair, and raise me up to do something for him. Will you listen to this pastor today? By his Holy Spirit, he can take brokenness and death and make it useful and fill it with life. It is what the Holy Spirit does. The Spirit of God energizes His people. And how desperately our sick world needs energized Christians. How desperately our sick families and communities need energized believers. And how desperately our world needs an energized church. In the words of Leonard Ravenhill, the greatest tragedy is a sick church in a dying world. And we need the energy, the moving, the wind, the breath of the Holy Spirit. I'm back in Acts chapter 2 to close now. Give me one more moment. Lastly, I want you to see that this Holy Spirit who came on the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, when the Israelites, when these disciples were in the temple celebrating the fact that God gave his law in an old covenant written on stone tablets, when they were there commemorating the descending of the law, God descended in the Spirit, and he gave them the law of God written in their hearts. And even as they celebrated the old covenant, God affirmed and instituted the new. The Spirit of God came like the wind, Acts chapter 2 says in verse number 2, there came a sound of a rushing mighty wind. But secondly, verse number 3 says, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. He appeared as wind, and secondly, he appeared as fire. Do you know what fire does? Fire purifies. And I want you to write this down. It is simply to say that the Holy Spirit purifies his people. It's what he does. It's his business. It's his work. He purifies his people. Notice verse number two says, There appeared unto them cloven tongues of fire. Now there's no reason to assume that this looked like fire but wasn't actually fire. No, it was actual flames of fire. And like every flame, every candle flame, every burning bonfire, every forest fire, flame has light 
and it has heat. And the Bible says in verse number three that those cloven tongues of fire came to each of those disciples and sat upon them. Now the word sat upon them means to remain with them. It means that he took up his residence in there. He remained there. And remaining on them, the Holy Spirit was cleansing their lives, making them useful for his glory. Let me be perfectly crystal clear. God uses people who are being transformed by his Spirit. And as surely as I need the Spirit of God to blow through my life and to energize me for his kingdom work, I need the cleansing power of the fire of the Spirit of God to make my life pure for his glory. You see, I suffer the same malady that all of you do. I am, like Isaiah said, a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When we see the Lord like Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter number 6, we recognize how desperately we need to be purified by the Holy Spirit. And speaking of Isaiah chapter number 6, listen, listen to what the Bible says in that cleansing moment in Isaiah's encounter with God. Verse number 5, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And listen to what happened when he acknowledged his need for cleansing. One of the angels uh, flew unto him, having taken a live coal, some fire. The fire of the Holy Spirit. And he brought that fire and he laid it, verse 7, upon his mouth. And he said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin is purged. The Holy Spirit came on Pentecost to energize the church and to purify the church so that this animated, energized, living body of Christ might be purified by his spirit and then become effective in carrying the good news of the gospel into a world dying under the disease of sin. And I want to say to you very plainly this morning that what our world needs is the solution found in an animated, energized, and purified church. The solution of this disease, the solution of this sickness will not be found in Washington. It will not be found in the European Union. It's not going to be discovered in Raleigh. The solution to this problem will be discovered when the church of Jesus Christ, energized and purified, steps out of this crisis, steps into this crisis and beyond this crisis with the power of the Holy Spirit among us. And this is where we will go in the coming weeks to talk about how it is that your life and my life and your marriage and my marriage and your family and my family and our church and our community can be renewed and refreshed and energized and purified by the active work of the Holy Spirit of God. It is his work, not ours. We cannot do it. Only he can. And it is my prayer that that work will begin in each of us today. And so would you pray? Would you ask the Holy Spirit of God? If you know Jesus as your Savior, he abides with you already. He's present with you. But would you invite him today to do this twofold work in you? Would you say, Lord, let this be a day of Pentecost for me? Lord, as you sit your spirit on that, 
on that Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? God, would you renew the work of the Spirit in my life? And would you ask him that by his Spirit he would energize you and make you effective? 